So this podcast is a little different. By the way, my name is Matt Odom. I am one of the pastors at Redeemer Church here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And this podcast is a little different than what is usually on our thread because I recorded it in my office and it is an explanation of Revelation 20. And so it's not a sermon and think of it more like a Sunday school class. And the reason I chose this format is um, because I want to be a little bit more technical with how I I walk us through the passage. And a couple of things before um, we jump in. I give a long explanation of uh, why uh, John is writing um, about this thing called the kingdom of God. Now, um, the kingdom of God isn't actually mentioned in Revelation 20 technically, but all of this, I believe, is in John's mind, and it's the way that Jewish people in the first century thought. And so I give a lot of background, including other gospels, kind of explaining uh, what I think is going on in Revelation 20 and um, the heated word that uh, most Christians, if you've been in the church at all um, for very long, they, they have views on this thing called the millennium, which is the thousand years. And I take that thousand years in Revelation 20 to be symbolic, like much of the other numeric language in Revelation 20. So a, co- a couple of other things, if you want to, to learn more, if you want to hear another person uh, preach on this text, I'm, I'm going to attach a, uh, a sermon and a paper that uh, is for further study. I will additionally have a, a book in my office, which is um, on Charleston Street there, if you want to kind of study the three views on the millennium. But the book is from a professor of mine named Dr. Dan McCartney. He wrote a, a, a great paper on the kingdom of God called Eki Homo, which means behold the man. And then the sermon I'm going to attach is from a pastor named Les Newsom down in Mississippi from 2007 that he preached to a group of college students. And I've um, been very much shaped and formed by that sermon for, for many years. And so um, let's jump in. I'll give you my take on this passage, but just know that there are many other uh, views and interpretations on Revelation 20 that are completely valid. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, let's look at the Bible today together. Hey everyone, I wanted to discuss Revelation 20 in a little bit different format than through a sermon, primarily because this is one of the most debated and confusing chapters in the entire Bible. And many Christians differ on its interpretation. I think it's very important to be charitable to any uh, other believer that comes at this text from a different perspective. But we in our um, denomination uh, do teach a, a particular truth about this thing called the kingdom of God, which is that the, the kingdom that Jesus uh, brought in when he... Uh, was a human being here on this earth um, was present in a very real sense uh, through his becoming a person. And so he would say things like um, the kingdom of heaven is uh, right before you or the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near. And he would tell stories about um, the binding of Satan 
and he would cast out demons, which was a sign. He would cast out people that were infested by demons, which was a sign that, that God's kingdom had come. And he, what he was doing was reversing uh, what had happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve were supposed to keep the garden clear um, from evil. And the serpent had infested the garden. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and he was doing things like listening to God's word and casting out demons, people in the first century, particularly Jewish people, would have seen that as a direct sign that God's reign or God's kingdom um, that had been promised throughout all of the Old Testament was present. It was here. Um, The confusing part about God's kingdom arriving is that most Jews in the first century um, thought that once God's kingdom came, this thing called the new age would be ushered in and everybody would be uh, saved that belonged to God and all of the wicked people would be judged immediately. And so when Jesus came and started preaching like stuff like the love your enemies and he was even saying gracious things to, you know, Roman soldiers, which were the direct enemy of God's people. It was highly confusing. And then the most confusing thing ever was when he entered uh, the holy city, Jerusalem, and was killed at the hands of uh, Rome. So um, the reason why I bring this up is because uh, not only was that extremely uh Confusing and a reversal of what every Jew had been taught about what God's kingdom ushered into earth would have looked like. They, they were thinking of King David when he basically subdued all of the surrounding enemies of Israel through sheer uh, physical force. What Jesus was showing and what is further manifested specifically during the day of Pentecost is that the kingdom that he ushered in was uh, spiritual in nature And when you hear me say spiritual, I don't want you to think um, not real. So this is one of the things that we've been learning in the book of Revelation is that the spiritual reality, the spiritual realm is just as, if not more real than the physical reality that you know. And so one writer says, heaven and earth in the Jewish mind, the biblical mind is like, is like Velcro. It attaches itself to one another so that it uh, coheres and is related and interlocked um, everywhere, essentially. And what John has been saying to these seven churches is like, look, I know that on earth it is extremely difficult to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Um, But the reason why he's writing this and the reason why he's telling them to endure is because even though it doesn't look like it, on earth, um, Jesus has defeated Satan in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And at Pentecost, the age of the Holy Spirit was ushered in so that Christians ought to see that the main battle in which they fight is not against other people, but it is deeply spiritual and deeply, and don't be thrown off by this word, deeply demonic in some sense, that the enemy is evil. And what chapter 20 is telling us, even though it uses a lot of language that gets can get confusing, is that once and for all, Satan 
the Satan, the accuser of mankind, will be judged forever. And that initial judgment has already happened at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that was a little or a big replica of what's going to happen at the future last day, the future judgment. So there is this common phrase that Jesus used when he referred to the judgment day. He would call it that day. Um, And he was referring to the day wherein uh, all of God's covenant curses for those who are outside of his covenant, outside of his presence, would be um, receiving the consequences of not being his and not loving him back and not worshiping him and not honoring him. And when Jesus was talking about this, he said, he was talking to his disciples and in Luke, he said, you know, um, th- this generate well, all the, it's called the Olivet Discourse when he was describing all these things that were going to take place, earthquakes and famines. And even said in Luke that the armies were going to surround Jerusalem. He said, look, when, when this takes place, um, you're not going to, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Now, what he was referring to with the disciples uh, primarily was his death and resurrection. That that day, the judgment day, came down on his head so that the people that belonged to him, i.e. the disciples, uh, would not be judged. And so there was this exchange happening at the crucifixion where we get Jesus's righteousness and Jesus gets the wrath and curse and judgment that we deserved. Everything from Jesus's baptism on was pointing to this taking place and everyone was confused about it. That's why Jesus kept telling his disciples, look, uh, the son of man has to suffer and be crucified um, and rise again. And the disciples, if you read it in all of the synoptic gospels, they are just they walk away confused because they thought that the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to come with physical force and uh, destroy the enemies of God, and that and that was judgment. And Jesus says, "No, actually, judgment is going to come on me. That's the day that I'm referring to now." That is uh, what Jesus was talking about with his disciples. But I want you to think about the gospel writers writing to their audience much like John's writing to his audience, the churches in the first century who were experiencing some extreme persecution, who were being lit on fire and used as torches for fun by Nero, who were being fed to lions just for entertainment, for for Roman people to watch, Uh, children, men, women, uh, being fed to lions in Colosseums. And... I want you to imagine that you are a Christian during that time experiencing this evil. Maybe you know people who have experienced this type of uh, just brutal treatment um, beyond oppression to what we know of today. And you hear a word from your pastor and you say, you know, and, and, he says, you know, God is going to judge the evil that's going on. Um, God's going to judge all that's gone wrong in your life. And it will happen uh, for sure. And so 
I want you to be thinking of these seven churches that John's audience is in. I want you to be thinking of the people that the, the gospel writers are writing to, like Luke's audience would have experienced the, the sack of the temple, which occurred near 70 AD. And that was just a terrible time for Jewish people. It was a terrible time for Christians. And so when they heard these things, they would not be interpreting uh, the words of Scripture through the 21st century. And so I think that's a good reminder because um, these, uh, these words in Scripture, they apply to all people at all times, but they had uh, first initial significance to the original hearers. And so I want to read you um, the, first, the first seven verses of Revelation 20 and just, just talk through it for a second. So um, remember, the Revelation 19 was talking about the great wedding where Jesus marries the bride after the destruction of Babylon. And then John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So I'm just going to tell you uh, straight up where I stand on that passage right there. I'm going to tell you what I I think that means. I, I think that in Jesus's uh, death and resurrection in particular, um, the defeat of Satan happened. Uh, not the full and final last day that's coming in the future, but all of the sting of death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, was, uh, was taken out so that there is a... Uh, a type of death that's um, that's different if you're a Christian. That the binding of Satan um, and his power was was broken, uh, not in a complete way, but in a very real way at the death and resurrection of Jesus's first coming. That's what I think that is referring to. And then then John says, then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This is what I think that means. So if you go to other places in Scripture like Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, Paul says that we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. That in some sense, in our union with Christ, what happens when a person becomes a Christian is that they have... uh, in, in essence, two realities. You have the reality that you live here on earth, but it overlaps with your heavenly reality. Some even call it your secret 
alternate reality, one theologian calls it. And, and what, what I mean by that is, is that you're, you're with Christ right now in a spiritual sense, that you're seated with Him at the right hand of God, and that your resurrection from the dead is as sure and even more sure than you waking up tomorrow. And I think that's what verses 4 through 6 are talking about when it says, this is the first resurrection. The dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So what I think that's talking about is that all those who believe in Jesus from now, from the time that Jesus came, became a person uh, and lived in the first century to when he's coming back, we participate in the first resurrection through being Christians, through being saved. Um, And that is the time frame in which we live, the age of the Spirit is how the New Testament talks about it. And verse 6 says, Blessed, this is Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So I think that we are currently living in the thousand years. Um pre-millennialists is what uh, there's another branch of how to view this called pre-millennialists think that the thousand years will begin when Jesus comes back for the second time Um, that is not my view but many many uh, Christians hold that view and it is um, a, a view that you can hold and still be an orthodox Christian Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. Remember, four is a representative of the entire creation. It says Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Gog and Magog are names that are emblematic and the, the prophets especially of the great enemies of God in they are uh, seen as Satan's sort of minions on earth. And they marched over, verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever think what this means is similar to the parable that Jesus told about the wheat and the tares, that uh, as history continues on, what's going to happen is that uh, good crops and bad crops are going to grow up together, and when they are fully ripe, then uh, Jesus will send his angels to harvest, uh, reap the harvest, which we've been discussing um, previously in previous chapters in Revelation. And so in, in 7 and 8, when it says that Satan's going to be released from his prison, I, I simply think what that means is that before the last judgment, um, the time of persecution of Christians uh, will be intense. And uh, the time of 
people uh, becoming Christians will be intense. So that there's this sort of ripening of whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and whose name, uh, who's marked by the beast. Um, so there's a time of intensification uh, right before Jesus's second coming when he's going to make all things right and new. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it from the presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the culmination of the complete and utter defeat of evil and Satan, the accuser of mankind, where death itself begins to ultimately and finally die. That is Satan's greatest weapon. Is death. And what we see here at the very end of Revelation 20, end of which everyone agrees, <laughs> who uh, holds to the Orthodox Christian faith, is that Satan will ultimately and finally be defeated to make way for the new creation. And this is our great hope. Um, there are different timelines that people subscribe to about when all this happens. But the, the ultimate point here of Revelation 20 is for John with this vision to look at these seven churches and say, it, it will come to an end. The evil that you endure, the evil that is within your heart and outside in the world will ultimately and finally be done away with. And there will never, ever be anything bad again after the final judgment day. Um, you could understand how that could come as a great, uh, not just relief, but the, the greatest hope you could possibly have in this life if you were under extreme persecution, which they were. Now, um, a couple of things before I sign off here. There is this, uh, this confession of faith that I hold to as a Presbyterian pastor called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there, uh, there's a guy named G.I. Williamson who writes sort of, he breaks down three different or basically four different views of the millennium or eschatology, as we call it in seminary, the study of the end times. And uh, I have one of these books in my office. And so if, if this is something that interests you more and you want to study more, you can always stop by my office, which is right by the church, and I can let you borrow this book. Um, but I, uh, I hold to the view that the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully manifested. And that has really permeated how I, um, how I read the, the scripture and and so I actually love thinking about this, and I think it has uh, a lot of pastoral impact. And so anytime a, a theology that you hold doesn't find, <laughs> doesn't find its way into um, informing or directing how we ought to live, I always have a, 
a little bit of pause and not saying that other views don't, but this is the view in scripture as I read more and more, I, I see that G, there, Jesus's death and resurrection um, was sort of the, the centerpiece of history. And through his uh, death and resurrection, as, and it's symbolized in him being the lion and the lamb in Revelation, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, um, that's what the whole book centers around. And that same lion lamb, this Jesus Christ, will, will come back at the end of time, and that will be the end of the, the cosmos as we know it. Um, and, and during that during that time, uh, there's going to be a purification, a refining of fire, a passing away of old things until finally this new heavens and new earth emerges from all of the hardship and all the suffering and all the death. Um, in, in a very similar way that we go into the ground like a seed and come out um, something far different a resurrected body, just like a seed of a plant or a flower comes out, something far different than what it was when it went into the ground. Uh, I, I, in some sense, think that the whole world is in seed form, which doesn't mean that it's not connected to the new world, but there is an overlap there, just like that uh, image that we got from from N.T. Wright of, of Velcro, that this world and heaven are connected, but we have so much to look forward to in the new creation after that final day. But in terms of Revelation 20, um, I, I believe that much of this has, uh, has taken place. And the final thing that we look forward to is when Jesus uh, does return again. And at that point, um, death will be no more. And all people will be raised from the dead, some to eternal judgment, and others to eternal, um, eternal pleasure uh, in his presence. So again, if you have uh, any questions, by all means, you know how to reach me. My email is matt at welcometoredeemer.com. And I would love to talk more about this, but I just wanted to record this because I'm not going to preach on it. And it's uh, a little bit more um, academically detailed than... I would sometimes want to be in the sermon, so, um,